the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2. What a treat for me, and I know for you all, one of my favorite people, someone some years ago we used to probably talk six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day, and now it's just been too long between conversations, and I'm glad to bring him back on the show. He is Ryan Williams. He is Ryan P. Williams, the president of the Claremont Institute. He's also the publisher of the Claremont Review of Books. And uh, wonderful new uh, publication uh, online, The American Mind. Ryan Williams, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, Seth? It's... Although The American Mind is now five years old. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. Is it really five years old now? Yeah, fall of 2018. Yeah. You know, we lost some years, though. You know, we just, you know, anything from 2020 basically till about yesterday is a fog to me. Maybe it may, that's maybe true. that's the problem. So to me, it, it would just be two years old. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> everything everything's at warp speed these days. Yeah, always something. Yeah, something. Talk about memory in a little bit, Ryan. For those, it has been too long since you've been on. For those that are unfamiliar with your biography and the Claremont Institute, a little bit, take a moment and uh, reintroduce yourself. Any autobiography you like, and then talk about what the Claremont Institute is and does and why it's different. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, a born and raised Southern Californian uh, and uh, went to college in Hillsdale, of all places, to study economics and politics and ended up figuring out whether I wanted to go to law school or grad school. Came back to Claremont. I had done uh, one of our fellowships here at the Claremont Institute, the Publius Fellowship for, you know, early 20-something types in media journalism, even some uh, academics who want to be you know, not a not a normal academic that retreats into the ivory tower, but one that wants to contribute to the public arguments and have an influence on the national conversation. I did that fellowship uh, about a year later, came back to work at the Claremont Institute part time while going to graduate school and uh, been there ever since. I've been there uh, 18 years this September Is or this right? August, wow. okay. Seth, if you can believe it, in yeah. some capacity or other. Yeah. And um, we, uh, you know, we're a think tank. About a $10 million think tank these days. Um, we've been growing in, in recent years. We do a bunch of teaching in our summer fellowship programs uh, for young folks, for mid-career folks in our Lincoln Fellowship, for lawyers at our John Marshall Fellowship, which actually I'm at right now in Newport Beach. Uh, our newest fellowship for sheriffs. We have a speechwriter's fellowship as well. And all these, we give a kind of crash course on how people ought to think about American civics and uh, the history of American political development uh, the the principles of the American founding, was, which is at the center of our mission to restore them and preserve them uh, and apply them, given our current crises and, and state of American politics. So that's our teaching project. We publish a couple things, as you said, the Claremont Review of Books, which is a, uh, essays and book reviews on uh, politics, history, culture, uh, but always with a view towards uh, offering some interesting commentary on how people should think about the current political situation and cultural situation in America. The American Mind, a little more online, gives us more opportunity to comment 
And then uh, we have our litigation shop, which does a lot of friend of the court briefs and a little bit of direct representation as well, mm-hmm. run by my colleague, John Eastman, who's, uh, of course, been in the news yeah. uh, for the last couple of years, <laughs> to say the least. Yes. Uh, a great a great American, whatever you read in the New York Times, John is a great American. And um, then we have our, our newest project is our Center for the American Way of Life in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. It's been open about two years, run by my colleague, Arthur Millick. And uh, there we, we like to focus on five or six areas of policy that we think pose existential threats to American liberty and prosperity. Things like identity politics, education policy are at the top of our list. So we want to focus on those few areas. We can offer, uh, I think, the best combination of ideas and the intellectual history of of the problems that we confront while also advising policymakers in D.C. and actually across the states. Uh, We just have a – we had a recent – Op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by my colleague Scott Yenner, who just did a report on the University of Florida's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts mm-hmm. uh, and the whole and the whole system. And we're working in other states too: Texas, uh, Tennessee, North Carolina. Doing a, doing a, working on a report in California as well. Um, so that's that's the kind of stuff we do. Ryan, let's get right to it uh, on some big themes, and then we'll focus and maybe narrow down a little bit. Um, Claremont Institute was founded, what, 79, 1979? 1979, 1979. And with the purpose, as you say, to restore the principles of the American founding to their preeminent authority and national. I guess it was in 1976, a few years before that, the intellectual godfather of the Institute, Harry Jaffa, wrote a book on the bicentennial. And he opened it by writing, um, try and get this right, in 1776, we were so to speak, nothing promising to become everything. Today, on our 200th anniversary, we have become everything and now promise to become nothing. How has the trajectory gone since 17, uh, 1976, if you are, or 1979, in our effort to restore the principles of the American founding to their rightful preeminent authority in our national life? Do you think we're better now than we were uh, 25, 30 years ago, or are we worse off than we were 25, 30 years ago? Well, seventy nine was more than forty years ago, but uh, we just we're just. It was my old. understanding not, not that, that there would be no not. math in this interview. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was my econ degree coming out. No, um, and I, I, we use the term "we" loosely. Of course, neither you nor I were at the founding of the institute. Um, you were alive, but I wasn't quite. Uh, well, <laughs> um, you're yeah, going to blame me for our problems, uh, okay? I see how this is going. <laughs> yeah, it's all, you're, you're all um, no, we're uh, we're much worse off than we were. Okay, uh, in a way, um, I mean, the Carter presidency was a rolling national humiliation in many ways, um, and that's part of partly what goaded uh, the founders of the institute, which included our, our friend Larry Arn mm-hmm. and uh, Chris Flannery and uh, a couple others, yeah. dearly departed yeah. Tom Silver and Peter Schramm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, we, you know, we've been doing the best we can to awaken in our fellow citizens and young, ambitious folks a concern for restoring the principles of the American founding. But, you know, that was the, the late seventies was sort of the the end of the beginning uh-huh. of the, of the rise of the real um, huge, uh, intrusive and tyrannical administrative state. Mm-hmm. The roots of the modern bureaucracy are at the turn of the 20th century, but it really took off mm-hmm. uh, it, with the Great Society and the Civil Rights Revolution and, and um, 
sort of working hand in hand. Uh, so we're we're now experiencing forty plus years later uh, a lot, not an unbroken chain of successes by that bureaucracy, but it's it's grown and grown and it has amassed more and more power. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the the political party more inclined to object to it and try to fight against it. The Republican Party has has really n- not been that serious very often about the threat it posed and had regarded it for a long time as just eh, it's just the post-New Deal settlement. We have to deal with it. There's nothing we can do about it. It's only really from uh, starting with a lot of Claremont scholarship in the 80s and especially the 90s about the roots, the theoretical roots of progressivism and the bureaucracy it gave us and the problems, the constitutional problems with that apparatus, that people are finally starting to wake up about it. And it really took... I think especially the Obama years, um, well, I, let's make this bipartisan. The rab- rapid expansion of uh, the bureaucracy and really what we should call these days, rightly, the deep state, mm-hmm. it's really born right after September 11th mm-hmm. and ushered in by the Bush administration, which it had all of that normal bureaucracy in place, but then this threat to security uh, led it to kind of fuse that bureaucracy or or its methods anyway with what you could call the security state, and that's our deep state today. So those are huge problems, um, partly in response to things that have nothing to do with Americans, of course, attacks on America. And for many of the players involved in the Bush administration, their motives were good. They wanted to keep Americans safe, but they created a monster, and it it combined with a previously existing monster of the, the bureaucracy that was already doing all sorts of domestic policy whereas Congress uh, in, say, the 19th century would have done that policy and been more accountable to the people. Ryan, it's interesting. How, so you, you talked about, you know, how we're doing on restoring uh, our rightful understanding of, um, of the principles of the American founding in, in, our, in our national life, and, and you did something very smart there, talked about it as an American thing, talked about it as a Republican Party thing. I have to take a commercial break. I, I would love your analysis on the other side of this break, if we could, in talking about how the conservative movement more broadly or more generally thinks about these things. It would be, I think, a tenuous thesis of mine as we go to break, to put it this way. You can obviously disagree or agree. Uh, that when the Claremont Institute was founded and when Harry Jaffa was doing a lot of his uh, formative writing in those years— or, yeah, a lot of his writing in those years, he was taking on a lot of the conservative movement for not understanding these principles. And in some respects, I want to make the argument that he may have won. He may have won a lot more over than we realize. And maybe we can pick up on that thread when we come right back. Would that be all right? That would be great. Ryan Williams is my guest. He is the president and publisher at the Claremont Institute, claremont.org. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth. Ryan Williams is our guest. Ryan P. Williams is the president of the Claremont Institute. He is also the publisher of their flagship publication, the Claremont uh, Review of Books, as well as their online publication, The American Mind. Ryan, we were talking a little bit about uh, the trajectory of uh, really the core mission of the Institute and how it's played itself out in our politics and culture at a at a at a party level with the Republican Party and at the country level, which is the restoration of the principles of the American founding, when Harry Jaffa was doing a lot of writing in the um, in the sixties and seventies, he was taking on, and even really through the eighties, a lot of yes, 
including the 80s, a lot of the conservative movement for not quite understanding the basis of conservatism had to be reliant on the American founding, which sounds a little odd to the ear these days to say that sort of thing. Maybe it was odd to hear it even then because people thought they were. But it seems to me there's a lot more effort, thinking, and writing in the conservative movement today along the lines of appreciating the founding in a way that it didn't used to be, in a way that he was fighting against. In other words, he may have, after all that work, won quite a lot of victories. What do you think? Maybe I have it wrong. No, I I think I should uh, just uh, offer one of Professor Joffa's pithy sayings to help people situate him and what he was talking about, about the Republican Party, which he used to say the crisis of the West, which he learned from his teacher, Leo Strauss, was a crisis of relativism, historicism, nihilism, uh, all fancy words. I encourage people to Google them (laughs) and brush up, but we don't have time here. But uh, the crisis of the West um, was really the crisis of America. And if you want to do anything about the crisis of the West or America, uh, your only hope, really, uh, when he was writing in the 70s, for a variety of reasons, he thought, was the Republican Party. And the only hope for the Republican Party was the conservative movement. So he spent a lot of his energy uh, beyond his excellent, more scholarly work, uh, rather than polemical work, Mm -hmm. on Abraham Lincoln and reviving the serious study of Lincoln. He spent a lot of the 80s, 90s, and up until his death, um, uh, five years or so ago, maybe it's a little longer. Uh, he spent a lot of his time uh, trying to chastise in a high and elevated way, although often a polemical way, uh, his fellow conservatives for not understanding American principles and founding principles and thus uh, not applying them correctly or getting distracted by less serious things and not going to the root of the problem. So he did win many victories. I mean, the re- serious study of Lincoln was basically revived by Jaffa. And that's a good thing, uh, especially on the right. Um, the serious study of American politics and the elevation, really, of of the American founding and the American founders, uh, the, he imbued them with an intellectual seriousness that often had been missed and has, and not, not single-handedly, but him and some of uh, uh, fellow traveling academics, uh, started doing serious work on the founding, and now their students and their students' students continue to do serious work on the American founding. Uh, that is all to the good, and um, Jaffa and others had a, a hand in it. I think um, Jaffa probably was the, the the most brilliant star in that firmament, uh, and we have a lot to thank him for for that. And that that influence academically, you know, uh, always bleeds into politics. So it, to the extent that the right has been better over the last few decades uh it's i think can be attributed in some part to the revival of this serious study of the roots of american justice which lie in the declaration of independence and the statesmanship of uh state you know of uh political actors like lincoln and uh john adams and john quincy adams and and all the founders and successive uh generations after you know it's funny you'd mentioned funny it's odd or ironic, you mentioned uh, his passing. It was 2015, and uh, the, uh, the reason I, I wanted to point that out for half of a moment is yesterday we were talking about the anniversary of Elvis's death, Elvis Presley's death. Do I need to say the last name when I say Elvis? And uh, I was saying there's only two famous people I remember where I was when I heard they died, Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. But I am now corrected when I hear you mention that. I remember exactly where I was when I found out Harry Jaffa died. I was in Southern California. I was in Carlsbad, or about to run a marathon, which he would have been proud of. I oh, think. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. It was, I remember it was a little bit of a dark, 
gray kind of Southern California day. Ryan, um, we from this side of the microphone, from where you sit, we're in deep soup here as a country. I, I have never heard. I've been in talk radio now 19 years. I've never heard such unhappiness over the way the regime is going, uh, over the way the, the direction, um, even some hopelessness, if you will, that I never used to hear. Yeah. What what would you say is the first big thing we need to tackle outside of the theoretical? Is it the judiciary? Is it the bureaucratic state that Marini and y'all have done such great work on? Is it something else? What What would you say is the first thing that needs to be grabbed by the horns? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll kind or of. Or maybe it's a-, a kitchen sink. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'll kind of cheat and say the deep state, the administrative state. Okay, um, but I would take aim first and foremost because you, if you, you know, if a Republican were to win the presidency again, they need to focus on the reform of the FBI and the DOJ. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, because partly because you will have political momentum to do so. Yep. I mean, I see a, I see in recent polls that a plurality of Americans don't trust the Justice Department to handle the Hunter Biden investigation. Um, use things like that to go after this this thing. Um, we have this new volume out called Up from Conservatism, Re- Revitalizing the Right After a Decade of Decay, okay. that my uh, colleague Arthur edited. People should go buy one. But one of the chapters, two chapters in there, one on the administrative state by C.O. Wold, who's teaching as I speak here at the John Marshall Fellowship, currently the Solicitor General of Idaho, and a fellow of ours, and then one by Robert Delahunty. And Delahunty's is on the FBI and how to reform it. And, um, you know, the FBI started to go wrong when it, re- again, really after 9-11, because it became what it was not previously, uh, which was a domestic intelligence service. Yeah. Uh, now, in other countries, you don't really combine domestic law enforcement with domestic intelligence. If we're going to have domestic intelligence, it needs to be pulled out of FBI or separated somehow, uh, and the whole thing needs to be reformed. Now, this is not to say that J. Edgar Hoover, of course, was a Boy Scout. Right. Uh, plenty of FBI abuse predates 9-11, but it's really where it got a lot of juice. So I would go after that first. Um, and I also I would just say I'm telling audiences more and more, especially young folks, um, I'm, I'm somewhat bearish on national politics and more bullish on state-based politics. Now, we're still going to be operating and advising in national politics and writing about it, of course. No one should give up, and people should pursue those offices and, and do, do well for their country. But people should also need to go home, uh, go home to their home states and start building coalitions and networks of serious people concerned about their country and let, willing to run for offices, let, all the way down to school board. And yeah, let me, let me pause on yeah, that. Yeah, one more commercial yeah. break. We have a short one more segment I'd love to keep you over for if I can. On that very point, I was just talking about that the other day, <clears throat> the, um, the opportunities and pitfalls of, uh, of working at, at the more state and the more local level. Uh, let's pick up on that when we come back. Uh, Ryan Williams is my guest. He is the president of the Claremont Institute, publisher of the Claremont Review of Books. You often will hear Charles Kessler come on this show whenever they put a new issue out, which is quarterly, and uh, The American Mind, AmericanMind.org, or, you know, just go to the Mothership's website, Claremont.org, for all of that, C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T, Claremont.org. Ryan and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Ryan Williams has been and is my guest. He's the president at the Claremont Institute. He was talking, Ryan, you were just saying before the break, you're 
bearish on the recovery of our institutions as we go into more localized thinking uh, states. And then below that, in the 90s, there was this big devolution concept that was popular. And of course, subsidiarity is always the thought. I was just mentioning the other day, you know, when I was working in D.C. and people, the whole effort was to get things back to the states. I was I was cautionary about that. Yes, good good thing in and of itself, but it's not the solution to the problem. State bureaucracies can be just as bad. State state entrenchments can be just as bad as federal, and in some cases, much worse. And while you were thinking and talking about the problems to tackle having to do with the bureaucratic state, I think if I were to look at one it would be that I would want to tackle first. It would be education uh, and what's gone on there. And you'd mentioned school boards, and that's where I think the magic is. Uh, We've seen some successes there, particularly here locally, particularly here in Scottsdale. In fact, voter turnout for a couple uh, Scottsdale reform-minded ladies in uh, school board races beat general turnout here, even for other popular Republican candidates, by about, if memory serves, 13%. There's a huge interest in taking back our schools. We learned a lot about those. Anyway, I just thought I'd point that out and maybe as, a, as, a, as an additive to what you were saying for any thoughts you have. But education is a big damn deal right now to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's where we've been doing a lot of work, yeah. policy work across the states. Sure. You know, we'll, we'll write up reports about the state school systems and the penetration of diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff and bureaucracy. And a lot of time, you know, Republican legislatures are kind of are shocked yep. at the level at which it's yep. been going on. Yep. Uh, you know, t- a while back, we did a report on Tennessee, and the Tennessee legislature tried to shut it all down and even required uh, the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and others to shut it down. And and uh, they kind of, the bureaucrats lay low, the school administration laid low for about a year and then just started quietly rehiring all their diversity officers. So you got to slap them down again. So, um, and then the K through 12 system is probably an even more urgent question. Yep. Yep. Um, and it's a matter of competition, like, you know, uh, Corey DeAngelis and all of his school choice stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, Arizona's uh, been at the head of this where you live. So that's great. Um, to a degree. Uh, I mean, yes. I, school choice, yeah, again, it's, it's like a, moving things yeah. to the states. Yes, yeah. that. No, no. But then, you know, uh, we have an awful yeah, lot of cruddy private schools, you know. The, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. No, the, it's, it's a multi-front yeah, war. Yeah. Um, and, and you need to defund and destroy the education schools. Yeah. Uh, They've been the source of this problem. They credential all the, especially the public school teachers, and they, you know, they're basically hotbeds of of uh, uh, what my chairman has called woke communism. Yeah, right? that's what they whole, are. Unholy yeah. union of the modern left yeah. and and the old left. Yeah. So no, that's yeah, that's uh, there's a lot to be done there, uh, and you can do. And we're sort of preparing in scholarship and in policy papers, and well, not and just sort of we're we're working on some guidance for a future. Uh, Republican administration to work with states that are willing to try to dismantle it from both ends, that is from the federal funding end and the strings attached end, but also from the state level. So it's a huge thing. Um, it, you know, as long as you are, ha- most of our public schools now, K through 12 and higher education, and a, a lot of our elite um, private schools, again, at K through 12 and in, in college, are madrasas of anti Americanism. Yes. I mean, they teach. They teach everyone to hate their country. They teach, you know, they're sort of uh, anti-white in their disposition. They they teach that the vi- the villain class are the white kid, ha- white heterosexual kids, and mm-hmm. everyone else is oppressed. I mean, I'm I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush, but that's kind of how it breaks down. And this is just the latest vehicle for the advance of leftism uh, and uh, 
it's they're using it as a as a tool to gain and amass power and control. And so that's that's the same thing that the old left did. Uh, just the terms of the of the debate have changed, and they've they've you know, taken identity politics up or cultural Marxism up or whatever you want to call it as their vehicle for the gaining and uh, retaining of an exercise of power. So we should we should just call it what it is and, and fight like hell against it. Uh, on that note, Ryan, <laughs> on that note, I'll thank you for your time with us. That's yes. Fight like hell against it. I'm with you. Uh, Ryan Williams, he is the president of the Claremont Institute. I should say where I am privileged to be a senior fellow and delight in that. And uh, Ryan, uh, we'll visit with you again soon. Maybe next week we'll catch up on some more specifics, but it's been a delight having you with us. I would love it. Thank you. Uh, always a pleasure, Seth. Thanks. You betcha. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Young David, did I ever, I've encouraged you and uh, interested you in a few music- musicians you were not hip on until you joined uh, joined our, our, our happy brotherhood here. Is uh, Pete Townsend one of them, or were you always hip to Pete Townsend, no, or is it a not like yet? Anything. It's a, it's a non-entity in my life right now. It's a not yet. Yeah. All right. More the Who, more Pete Townsend. I think you'll get there. I think you'll find the brilliance of it. Uh, no sooner did I just finish the conversation with Ryan Williams talking about the problems in education than I uh, saw on my uh, X account or Twitter account, whatever you're supposed to call it. <laughs> what do you call it? Do you know what the preferred I, I, I parlance is? What, so, what, you know, you used to be able to tweet. What yeah. do you do? I X'd? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you do. <laughs> I don't know what you do. Um, no sooner did I do that, I saw this post uh, at ASU, I guess first day of school at Arizona State University, and someone took a picture, uh, looks like at the commons or some common area there, of uh, one of the student club recruiting uh, tables, and it is a uh, big red banner with a picture of Karl Marx, and it says, Join the Communists! Exclamation point. And then it has a hammer and sickle, and it says, Students for Socialist Revolution. Students for Socialist Revolution. Um, the hammer and sickle thing is kind of an interesting thing. Um, it was, you know... What was adopted for the Russian, this insignia of the Russian Revolution and, of course, the Soviet Union. So it's it's not as if these people can claim, well, it was an imperfect one, you know. They didn't do it quite right, which is often the defensive, the defensive uh, retreat of Marxists and communists, uh, self-declared communists, when we point out how it doesn't work. But interesting that they post the insignia of those failed societies. Now, maybe they don't think they were failed. I mean, if you talk to Bernie Sanders, he still has fond memories of visiting the Soviet Union and still thinks that it was a better place to visit than Solzhenitsyn, who escaped the Soviet Union and lived in his own state when he was governor, who he never bothered to visit. Uh, Rather, he would honeymoon in the Soviet Union and come back and extol us on the virtues of it, like the long bread lines, which he said were a good idea and a good thing and worse. Join the Communists, Students for Socialist Revolution at ASU. Now, they have a Twitter account or an X account, again, whatever you want to call it. And uh, on that account, it, uh, it tells you who they are, the Arizona, branches of the, the Arizona branch of the International Marxist Tendency. Are you a communist? Get organized. It says, Socialist Revolution will be on campus this morning and many other mornings. 
and evenings this month as we table, poster, and flyer for our new student club. Now, what's interesting to me about this is this just goes on without a peep. This goes on without um, any doubt or any questioning or any scratching of the head or furrow of the brow from the administration at ASU, even as the poster itself, the flyer itself, is calling for an illegal act, an illegal activity, revolution. Um, you know, I guess, I guess if you call for insurrection, it's a bad thing, but if you call for revolution, it's a good thing. I suppose that's the breakdown, right? Insurrection, bad, revolution, good. Uh, both are awful, uh, just so there's uh, clarity uh, from anyone who might be confused about what I'm talking of. But what's interesting to me is at the Barrett Honors College at ASU, as many of you know, uh, 39 professors could see Dennis Prager coming to campus to give a talk on health, wealth, and happiness and to claim against him as a purveyor of hate and a white nationalist. And uh, the people that were involved in uh, promoting that event and hosting that event got fired. And ASU directed that uh, the advertising for that event on health, wealth, and happiness with featuring Dennis Prager should be taken down and was, in fact, taken down. So they wouldn't allow it to be advertised, and the people involved got fired as well as defamed for bringing in Dennis Prager. But join the communists, students for socialist revolution, hammer and sickle, not a peep, not a peep. Uh this is, the, um, this is the same school that had nothing to say about and no dissent when it hosted Angela Davis, an admitted Marxist, responsible for the transfer of weapons that, led to, that were used in a uh, series of homicides that killed four people, including a state judge. Uh, not a peep raised when um, a racist who advocates just like George Wallace, named Ibram Kendi, was brought to ASU's campus. So something very rotten is going on over there where you can defame good people and label them and libel them, um, but allow the most radical of leftist notions, including calls for revolution, calls for revolution, to take place without a peep. We can have the argument and discussion about that part of it, but don't you think something is very, very wrong at Arizona State University where there's where this disparity takes place. this I don't know if it's a double standard or a triple standard, but it's not a single standard. It's certainly not a single standard, which is what the First Amendment demands. It demands a single standard when you open up a public forum for speech. And you would think that almost every public university you could imagine, you would think that almost any college or university you could imagine would basically be a public forum, but certainly a public university would be. Once you're a public forum... You cannot discriminate on viewpoint, and yet that's what ASU is doing uh, and is defending itself for doing. They say, well, but the Prager event took place. Yes, but people got fired. It's, it's not free speech if there is a sanction to it. Do people not understand this? It's not free speech if there's a punishment to it. If I own a store and I advertise Thursday, October 17th, free toasters, help yourself. And young David sees the poster and comes in and helps himself to a toaster and walks out. And then I call the police and have him arrested for theft. That's not a free toaster. Okay? 
people have to understand these very basic principles of language, don't they? And when you have perhaps one of America's greatest living experts on anti-Semitism, who probably wrote the biggest-selling book on anti-Semitism, who himself happens to be a practicing and uh, observant Jew in the form of Dennis Prager, and you call him a white nationalist, words stop meaning things. Language seems to mean nothing at ASU, just as free speech seems to mean nothing at ASU, just as single standards seem to mean nothing at ASU. It came to my attention just as I got off the phone with Ryan Williams talking about the problems in higher education. You want a problem in higher education? You got one right here, right here, not in River City, but in Tempe. We'll be right back. How do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy with bank failures and stock markets ups and downs and talk of a recession and obviously inflation, which we all know way too well? Where do you go to invest? How about in a portfolio with a high fixed rate return not correlated to any of that, not the Federal Reserve, not the stock market? Why Refi has that? They have an investment in a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it. Whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi, and it offers a high fixed rate of return, 10.25% rate of return, 10.25% fixed rate of return. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and they are headquartered here locally at Scottsdale Road in the 101 They encourage you to stop by their offices. No one will ask you to sign anything. You're not going to get a sales pitch. They just like talking about what it is that they do. When you meet them, though, you'll understand why I like and trust them so much, and you will too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, letter Y, then refy.com, or call 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Joe Biden screamed at a reporter yesterday when uh, he was questioned about the Inflation Reduction Act's anniversary, and he said, name one thing this administration didn't get right. Name one thing from one promise we haven't fulfilled. And our friends at Issues and Insights created quite a list, starting with something that was an anniversary this week that I hope we don't forget, Afghanistan, a disaster of entirely Biden's making. Of course, Bidenomics is failing. Everyone knows it, which is why his approval rating on handling the economy is getting very close to single digits. Uh, he, all, he knew all about Hunter, business, Hunter Biden's business dealings, Um, There's a serious question to be had about his mental faculties and facilities. And, of course, his vice president, he said, would be um, a powerful and effective messenger. Uh, I don't think she's fit to even sit on the cabinet at this point. What our friends at Issues and Insights do conclude, which is something a lot of you have told me, is that Barack Obama is calling the shots And it's been an open secret for years that Obama is the brains behind the enfeebled Biden's presidency. Um, But, you know, when he taunts you to name one thing that's gone wrong on his watch, I will issue the exact opposite question. Name me one thing that's gone right. One. Be right back. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.